Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of December 2nd from Pastor Brett Cottrell. You've probably heard the term Advent. It's not necessarily synonymous or the same as the word Christmas. Advent is the season that leads up to Christmas. It actually is a word that means coming. It's a reminder to us of the people of Israel as they waited for the coming of the Messiah. They waited for the coming of the Chosen One. That's what the idea of Advent is. It is a people who are waiting, who are looking forward to something that is about to happen. And part of that is we use the word hope. There are four ideas in the idea of Advent. There's hope, peace, joy, and love. We'll be looking at those over the next few weeks throughout the Scriptures. And we hear the word hope, and most of us have probably used the word hope and more of the idea of this idea that we wish for something. I hope, and you saw in the video, I, I hope something happens. I hope that this takes place. I hope that that takes place. It might be students this time of year. we got finals coming up. I know, uh, I think tech students have finals coming up starting maybe this next week. Is that, is that right? So maybe it's, I hope I pass my classes. Now, yeah, amen. <laughs> or Brady's like, I hope I graduate. And we all do, Brady. Um. And so, and there's this idea that I hope, and there's this idea of wishing. I don't know if we're sure if it's going to happen, but I hope it happens. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not just this idea that I wish for something that might happen, but I don't know for sure if it will. In the Bible, when the word hope is used, it's often used with this idea. I know that something is coming, and I'm waiting for it to arrive. And I'm simply looking forward to the day when that actually takes place. So it might be more along the lines of of this. You're waiting with expectation about today's lunch. I I mean, we're going to work with the idea that we're assuming that in the next hour or so you get to eat, all right? So it might be that even some of you right now are going, I'm hoping for a good lunch. I don't know what you have. I don't know if you have stew, roast beef, Mexican food, whatever it might be. You're going, Brett, just get past hope so we can talk about food. And the the idea is I'm looking forward to something that is going to happen. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen. I know it will happen. I'm just anticipating it. There was, I have, every time I hear the word anticipation, I, now this is dating myself, but some of you will recognize this commercial. I think it dates back to the late 70s. So I know some of you weren't born then. uh, But I think it was, I think it was Heinz 57 Ketchup. And they had a song anticipation, and they would pour the bottle of ketchup, and it would just slowly, y'all, y'all, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm glad, and the idea was, it was worth the wait, and when we come to this idea of hope this morning, that's what we're talking about, this idea that God has promised that something is going to happen, that there is a place, or there is something that is definite, and what we're doing today is waiting, we're anticipating something that we know is going to happen. But sometimes the wait is part of the anticipation. So that's the idea this morning, as we look at this idea of a biblical hope. It's a vision. I mentioned this a little bit last year. It's a vision of the future. It's, it's knowing that something is going to happen, and knowing that it's going to happen transforms the present. It is a patient waiting for God to do what He said he was going to do. Hope and waiting, by the way, are, are really intertwined. I, 
Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to, we're getting, we're getting to Ephesians. Y'all just hang out there for a second. But Isaiah chapter 40 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It speaks of the, the majesty and the power of God. But the last few verses of that chapter are one, ones that we have all probably heard of or at least familiar with. The last verse of Isaiah chapter 40, it's verse 31, says this, Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. One of my favorite verses of all time in all the scriptures. And it speaks of this idea of waiting. Now sometimes we think of the idea of waiting and we get tired of waiting, don't we? How many of you have uh, gotten tired of waiting in the line at the drive-thru? Or you've gotten tired of waiting in line at Walmart? Or you got tired of waiting for, and you can just fill in the blank. And, and waiting kind of wears us out, doesn't it? And yet the Bible speaks of waiting on the Lord as something that actually may renew our strength, may give us wings like eagles, will help us to run and not get tired. This is the hope, the waiting and the hope that God will keep His promises. And this is the hope of Advent. It, it, it steers us towards the people of Israel who 2,000 years ago found themselves understanding and, and hearing the promises that God would send one who would save them. The most common name in the, in the days of, of Christ was actually the name Jesus. or In you know, Hebrew, it was the name Yeshua. And Jesus was named that, obviously. But it was also the most common name in all of Israel because every family was looking forward to the time when God would send His anointed one, when God's salvation would come. And so they all named their sons Yeshua, hoping that their son would be the one that God would bring. It was a sign of the waiting and the hope that the people of Israel had as they waited for God to do what He promised that He would do, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. So they waited and they hoped so as we look at Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to actually begin reading. I'm, I'm going to go back actually to verse 7. I, I uh, expanded this passage a little bit after I had given it to, to be put in the bulletin. So I want to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, that's Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Heavenly Fathers, we read through this as we study this passage this morning. May we be filled with the hope that you are a God who makes and keeps his promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We are a people this morning. A people of hope. Now that's not meant to be a, a cultural thing. Americans like hope. It's not meant to be a, a description of just the general population. But we are, as the people of God living in 2018, to be a people of hope. That is, we are looking forward to something. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, are there some things you're looking forward to in the coming weeks? You might have some of this, you might have a whole list of things. I'm looking forward to the family getting together on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or, or whatever is your schedule. You may be looking forward to the beginning of a new year. You may be looking forward to the end of a semester. There are probably all kinds of things that you're looking forward to. But as the people of God, we have something unique this morning that we are looking forward to that makes us a people of hope as we wait for God to keep his promises. And we see that a little bit right here in verse 7 of chapter, of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. We have this morning a hope in God's purchase of us. The word redemption there in verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This idea of redemption that we see here in verse 7 is this idea that there is a ransom paid. It literally has the idea that money has been set aside and put out there to pay for someone's release. Now, we understand the word ransom, right? We, we tend to kind of associate that with maybe kidnapping. There's always a good movie out there that has a kidnapping and someone's paying a ransom, right? Well, that's the idea behind the word redemption. It is that there has been something paid so that someone else is released, is given their freedom. So the Bible tells us that you and I, as those who have come to faith in Christ, we are those for whom a ransom has been paid. You and I are people that have been purchased. We have been freed. As the people of Israel were freed from the nation of Egypt in their slavery so long ago. We are ones whose freedom has been bought, has been purchased. Now, for you and I, the purchase price was not some sum of money. It wasn't uh, a promise of, of work. The, the thing that freed us, the price that purchased us, is the blood of Christ. It was that little baby that we've been singing about this morning, infant lowly, infant holy. It's that little baby who would 30 some odd years later stand before Pilate, be beaten and bloodied and bruised and beaten, and who would find himself nailed upon a cross, spilling out his blood so that you and I could be purchased or released from the domain of darkness that is Satan's rule. The sin would no longer have reign or authority over us and that we would be freed from our sin, freed from the authority and the terror of death and that we would have the promise of eternity, the hope of salvation. You and I have been those who have been purchased. And understand this. Look at, the, look at this purchase he's given us. This purchase through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. God didn't just pay a price. Now, I don't know about you, how many of you went shopping or shopped online or something like that on Black Friday last week? How many, how many of y'all went Black Friday shopping? Some of you go, I don't want to admit it. 
How many of you were up at like, I don't know, 2 a.m. Thursday night, Friday morning, shopping? All right. Now, why do you shop Black Friday at 2 a.m.? Why, 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 why do we do that? It's cheaper, right? We're trying to save money, right? The best deal is at 2 a.m., right? Or at least in theory. Personally, I'm not doing 2 a.m. I'm, I'm asleep at 2 a.m. That's what I am. But the idea is that we're saving money, right? We don't want to spend more than we have to, right? And yet, when God saw you, when God saw me, He didn't look at us and say to Himself, how little do I have to pay to get them? This word right here, He bought us according to the riches of His grace. He lavished on us. This, this is not a word we use a lot, perhaps, today. We don't use the word lavish, but the idea is this. I just pour it all out there. And I'm not worried about how much it costs. Whatever I have, it is up for grabs because I want you, he says. So God does not come to us and say to us, I spent as little as possible to redeem you. He says, I lavished all my riches, I lavished all my grace, I lavished all my love. There was no end. And if, if, you, can, if you can think of the, the, the riches of God, and we, we have glimpses of heaven in the Scriptures, and we think to ourselves how incredible heaven may be, and we think of the great wealth it perhaps represents, at least in our ideas. But understand the eternal wealth of God, and He takes that wealth, and He lavished it. He poured it out upon us, so that we could be bought and belong to Him. God saw you and He said, I will spare no expense. I don't know what, that, that, that should be an amen right there, by the way. God saw you and said, I will spare nothing. I will do whatever it takes in my eternal grace because I want you. So we have a hope this morning. Because our hope is on the fact that God saw us and lavished on us whatever it took to purchase us, to redeem us from our own sin. We're the ones who put ourselves in slavery. We rebelled, we sinned, and yet God loved us so much, He lavished His wealth, so to speak, on us. Man, what an incredible thing. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul talks about there, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait until we got our lives straightened up before he lavished upon us his grace. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, while you and I were still in rebellion, while we had our backs turned upon him, God lavished his grace upon us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 says that we were as a people alienated, hostile in our minds, engaged in evil deeds. That is before Christ. 1 John chapter 3 says this. I want to read this part. 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared to us 
as yet what we will be, we know that when, we, when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. We have this hope that while we were still sinners, while we were still alienated in our minds and hostile and rebellious towards God, that He loved us so much that Christ spilled His blood and God lavished upon us the great wealth of His grace so that we could one day be called His children. And that you and I, even though we may this morning be those who have placed our faith in Christ and will say, I've received God's grace, 1 John 3 says, there is yet something still to come. There will be a day, and we don't know what it's going to be like yet because we haven't gotten there yet, but we will see Him face to face, and you and I, we will be transformed into something we can only dream about right now because we will be like Him. So we have a hope. And we're waiting with anticipation. Lord, what will it be like to one day see you face to face? To one day find, as I look at myself, that my body resembles the body that we saw Christ have at His resurrection. What will it be one day when I'm surrounded not by fluorescent lighting or even the light of the sun, but the, the surrounding cult, the surrounding environment is filled with light because God Himself is light. What will that day be like? That's anticipation. That's waiting. That's what you and I are, are, are looking forward to. That's the hope we have because of the purchase of God. But it's more than that. We have hope on His purchase. We also have hope in God's providence. And yes, I'm going to do something this morning I don't always do. I'm going to alliterate four points. <laughs> we have purchase. We have providence this morning. We also have God's purpose and God's promise. I don't always do that very poetic. This is the way preachers are supposed to do it, right? So this morning I'm doing it that way. We have God's providence. Look at verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullest of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. I want us to know something this morning. We have hope not just in God's purchase, but we have hope because of God's providence or God's plan. We are here this morning because before the creation of the world was in place, God had a plan. And God sees that plan through. Now, if you're like me, we can make all kinds of plans. And my garage and storage building are full of all kinds of plans that got started and didn't get finished. Y'all have that problem sometimes? Plans started, but they don't get followed through. God's providence is when He plans, and then He follows through, and He oversees it, and He makes sure it takes place. So look at God's providence here as seen in this. First of all, He made known to us the mystery of His will. Now, again, like the word hope, the word mystery has a little different idea in the New Testament than what we tend to think of. it. Now, we think of the word mystery, you know, okay, I, I was raised with the Scooby-Doo era. Scooby-Doo cartoons, late 60s, 70s, Scooby-Doo cartoons, and they drove the mystery machine. Yes. I don't know what kind of band that was, because I guess it's a, it's a mystery. Yes, thank you. I, 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 was waiting, I was waiting for somebody to get that. It's a mystery. Now, when you think mystery, we think Scooby-Doo, we think mystery novels, we think, oh, there's something unknown, it's a puzzle we have to figure out, right? In the Bible, when the word mystery is taking place, it's not so much there's a mystery, a puzzle to be solved, it is, there was something that is true that hasn't been made known yet, and we're making it known now. 
It's the idea that there was something that we weren't told before, and now it's been made known. So the mystery is not a puzzle to be solved so much as it is something we don't know yet. And so he says this. Here's what Christ did in verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, He made known to us the mystery of His will. In other words, there was something that God was up to that God hadn't really made it obvious just to everyone just yet. He'd given us insights, He'd given us hints. He had kind of foreshadowed it in the Old Testament. But there was a plan, there's a mystery, there's something that God hadn't fully made known yet and that He made known through Christ. That's the idea. So we have this idea that God put this mystery and plan into effect and He oversaw it. The Christmas or, or Advent, the coming of Christ, what we're looking at this month is is a revealing of God to the world of what His plan is. Now, what was going to be difficult for the people of Israel in particular was they thought they knew the mystery. They had filled in the blanks on their own, and they had filled in the blanks incorrectly. And so when God made known His mystery to them, they thought, eh, we liked our blanks filled better than his blanks. And so they often rejected Christ. But God has made something known to us through Christ. Now look at this. Not only did God reveal to us his plan through Christ, it says he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him, in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Now, this is a lot of, this is kind of wordy. Paul likes to use lots of big words and throws them all together and doesn't always have really great grammar. Let me, let me boil this down. Not only did God tell us what we didn't know before through Christ, He did it at just the right time. Now, there are two words in the Greek language that refer to time. One is the word chronos. We get the word chrono, chronological from it. It has the idea of, of a sequence. It's a clock. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, all that type of stuff. Uh-oh, song in my head. Rock around the clock. Did you even get that? I got the, I got the Happy Days theme song in my head, yeah. Another old show, sorry, dating myself this morning. So there's chronology, there's chronos, there's the clock. There's another word called kairos, and kairos is this idea of this. When something happens at just the right moment. We've all had those things happen, oh, that came at just the right time. That person said to me what I needed to hear just at the right moment. That person showed up at just the right time when I really needed it. It's at just the right time. And that's what's going on here. Paul says to us that God revealed to us through Christ his plans, and he did all this. He revealed it to us. He sent Christ at just the right moment. Galatians chapter 4 says, when the fullness of time came, that's the same word, it's the same phrase. When the fullness of time came, God sent His Son, born to a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of children. We could probably spend a long time trying to figure out why Jesus came at just the time He did, but whatever it is, God saw history from before the time of creation, and He went... At that point in time, on that day, on that moment in history, that will be the perfect moment. And Christ came then. By the way, God still works that way. He still brings things to happen at just the right time. 
So he sent Jesus Christ and to, to reveal some mystery. And so God oversees this plan. It's his providence. He moves things. He works in all the circumstances. He even works through our sins sometimes to accomplish his purposes. So it's God's providence. We have hope in that. So you and I this morning have hope. Not only, not only that God purchased us, but that he in his providence cares for us and maintains our salvation and works in us at just the right moment, at just the right time. He stays with us, if you will. But there's more. Verse 10, we, there is a, a purpose here that our hope is in. Our hope is in not just God's purchase, not just in God's providence, but it's in God's purpose in Christ. And he says in verse 10 that his purpose is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. It's this idea that everything is brought together under one roof, if you will. There are times it just looks at the people of Israel in his day. We see this a couple times in the Gospels where Jesus looks at the people of Israel and he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he describes them as a people without a shepherd. Do you know what sheep do without a shepherd? What do, what do they do? They scatter. Isaiah says in the Old Testament, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. The people of Israel are described in the book of Judges as being a people who everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, if there's a hundred people in the room, there's a hundred different directions and a hundred different ideas of what's wrong and a hundred different ideas of what's right, a hundred ideas of what we can do, a hundred ideas of what we can't do. If that doesn't describe our world today, I don't know what does. Even the, the United States, our population is, is what? Somewhere around 350 million, I think, maybe thereabouts. We have 350 million different ideas about what's right and wrong. And what's, getting right, what's, worse, what's worse about it now is we can't even talk about it anymore. If two people disagree, there are arch enemies now. We each do what's right in our own eyes, and we are a scattered people. And so what God says is His plan, His purpose in Christ, is to bring us back together and to bring us all into Christ. To, to reverse that process. If Again, we look through the, the history of Scriptures, we would see in Genesis chapter 11, the story that we call the Tower of Babel. When the men of the men of earth had defied God, had disobeyed Him, and said, we're going to do what we want to do, and began to build this tower to, to essentially rebel against God. And so God took this next step to divide them and scatter them, and He confused their languages so that they couldn't talk, they couldn't communicate. He scattered the people as a result of their disobedience and their sin. In the book of Acts, we begin to see the reversal of that as at Pentecost, the disciples are speaking and all these different languages, all these different people, all these different ethnic groups are beginning to understand the people, or understand the disciples. It's the reversal of what took place at Babel. And what we see in that is the process where God is bringing his people to no longer be scattered, but to bring them together. And by the way, the church today, even in the year 2018, is supposed to be a picture of this. We're to be a people, we're to be a people as a church not of scattered, but of, of unified, loving one another people. We're to be a people who look at Babel and are in the process of seeing that reversed. That doesn't mean that all of us are going to learn to speak Spanish or Greek or you know, 
whatever. It does mean, though, that we as a, as a people will find ourselves not separated by the things that separate the people of the world. That you and I as a church, that we, as a church, as a, as, a, as a family of God, that we are no longer people divided by ethnic or culture or finances or the way we look, but that we are to be brought all under the same umbrella, if you will. Church is supposed to be the one place in the world where people aren't separated by what separates everyone else. This is one of the hallmarks of the church. And God says, I want all this to be summed up in Christ. Everyone brought together, gathered together as a shepherd would bring together his sheep. One commentator said, it's a heresy of our times to divide life into secular and sacred. Let me, let me give you another place we separate. Not only do we separate sometimes along cultural or racial or ethnic or financial or whatever lines, sometimes we separate our lives into what we people call secular and sacred. In other words, there's church, and then there's the rest of our real lives. Now, we, we understand that, don't we? we? We've heard that. There's who I am on Sunday. There's who I am on Wednesday night, if I come on Wednesday night. And then there's the life I live on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday. And, and sometimes, we, in our minds, we separate those two. That's a, that's a heresy. That is a fallacy. That's a lie from Satan. You and I can no longer separate Monday from God than we can separate Sunday from God. It's all to be brought under one umbrella. It's all one life lived out for and in obedience to Him. And yet we often divide ourselves instead of unifying ourselves or letting Christ unify us. We let our sins or one of our sins or mistakes in the modern churches that we create divisions where there should be none. Sometimes we are separating our lives on Monday from our lives on Sunday. Sometimes we're separating science and theology. Yes, I said that. Science and theology, the study of God, if you will, and the study of our, our material world. These things are not separated in Scriptures. We're the ones who separate them, and we create problems when we do. There will be a day when we'll understand that science and theology are all one big thing, and that God's got it all under control. We separate by race or ethnicity. We separate by gender. How many, how many great debates are there between husbands and wives, men and women, the war of the, the sexes, so to speak? The Bible doesn't have that in, in its understanding. The Bible has this unity idea. We're the ones separating Christ. God is unifying in Christ. So we have hope in God's purchase of us. We have hope in God's providence over us. And we have hope in God's purpose in Christ to unify us and bring us all together. It all culminates, if you will, in Christ Himself. But finally, we have hope in God's promise. Look at verse 12. Paul says, All this works to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. What's going on here? We see in this idea that, this verse here, that we have what we might look at as the Holy Spirit of promise. That's the Spirit of God. 
Now, why does God give us the Holy Spirit? We, the New Testament speak all throughout the New Testament, and in the Old Testament it says it will happen. Joel talks about this, it will happen, there will be a day when this happens. But what happens is this, when we come to faith in Christ, when we confess our sins, re- repent before Him, ask for His salvation, not only does God save us from our sins, He also sends His Spirit to dwell within us. Christ talked about this to His disciples. In fact, His disciples in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, are mourning and they're upset with this idea that Christ might be crucified and taken away from them. And Christ says, listen, it's actually better for you when I go. Because until I go, the comforter won't be sent. So God in His wisdom has looked at us and said, the best thing I can do for you is to send to you to dwell within your life my Holy Spirit. And here's what that Spirit does. He is a pledge. He is a seal, if you will. Verse 13, we are sealed in Him. So those of us who find our hope in Christ are those whom God had turned around and made a promise to us through the presence of His Spirit. And that Spirit acts like a seal. And at the times of the Bible, they would have understood this idea of sealing. Um, if you remember the story of Easter, we talked about the story of Easter. And, and at uh, that time when Christ was put in that tomb, the Pharisees and the Romans were a little bit worried that the disciples would steal the body. So they put that tomb over, they put that stone in front of the tomb, and it was sealed with a wax emblem of the Romans. And the idea was that seal was, a, was some of authority, and you would know what took place. It, was, it, 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 it made everything final, so to speak. So they would have understood the seal in, in this day and age to, to represent the authority of one who has the ability to fulfill his promises. So God gives us the Holy Spirit as a way of saying, you want, you belong to me, you have my mark upon you, but two, I am uh, sealing this. I am, I am uh, finalizing it. I'm putting my name on the line. God says, by my name, by my character, by my, uh, char- by my uh, attributes, I seal you, make you mine. And no one else has authority over you. This is why, as a, a Southern Baptist in particular, we talk about eternal security. Because once I come to faith in Christ, He's the one who saves me, He's the one who makes the promise, and God is the one who places His seal upon my life. Who's going to break God's seal? Here's a short answer. No one. <laughs> Including you. If God's not the one who does it, then it can be broken. But God's the one who did it, so it can't be undone. So we, are, we have the Holy Spirit of promise. He is given to us. And he also says there in verse 13, or sorry, verse 14, is given to us as a pledge, as a down payment, if you will. Sometimes if you go through the process of buying a house, sometimes uh, you're required to pay something called earnest money. And the idea is you put a, a sum of money down to make sure you don't back out of the deal before the contract is finally signed. Is if you put that earnest money down and then you back out, you lose that money. That's the idea. So what God has done is not only has He sealed us, not only has He made a promise to us, He's given us a spirit come as a down payment. He is saying to us to, so that you know that I will keep my promise to you. I'm giving you my spirit as a down payment, as a pledge, so that you will have no doubts that I will keep my promise. So this morning, we are a people 
who can look at the promises of God and know His Spirit within us and know that because we have the Spirit of God, God will in fact keep His promise to finish the job. You and I, as we sit here this morning, our salvation is not complete. None of us who sit here this morning have completed in our lives the process of being holy. Every single one of us, still myself included, wake up each and every day struggling with sin, struggling with selfishness. And we have that battle that Paul talks about in Romans, a constant struggle with sin. You and I, we wake up every morning and sin and death is still a reality. We, we deal with death. We deal with grief. We deal with pain. That's the world that we live in and that's the world our bodies are subject to. You and I, we still have those things in front of us. We still have death looming over us. And yet, we have this promise that there will be a day when that will no longer be something we're waiting on. But it will have arrived and death will no longer be at our doorsteps. Disease will no longer be around. Sin will no longer be a struggle for us. It will all be defeated. Our salvation will be made complete and we will be transformed as we see Him face to face. Now that's worth waiting for. The people of Jesus' day were waiting. They were desperately waiting, anticipating the coming of the Messiah anticipating the coming of the Christ. And he came. But as this morning we celebrate Advent, we, we remember what it was like for them to wait. The truth is we, you and I, we're, we're still kind of waiting as well. And so as we remember their wait and how God ultimately fulfilled his promise to them as they waited for it, we're waiting. Last week, we, I think, was it last week we said, Come, come, Emmanuel? I love that song because there is in that song, if you listen to the words, as you sing and you hear the melody, there is a desperateness as the people of God are longing for, please, Lord, come. It's the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt saying, please, Lord, deliver us. Please, Lord, bring us out of of, a, of captivity in Babylon. Please, Lord, send your Messiah. Please, Lord, desperately, we need you. Please come. That's, that's, what, they were, that's what they were longing for. And we, we take some time over the next few weeks to remember that longing, that wanting and that waiting. But even as we do that, we remember that you and I were waiting. We're waiting for the day when he returns. That's our hope today. That we live this morning. That we live tomorrow morning. With one foot here, yes. But with our eyes looking forward to what he has promised. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come.